welcome to War Christ. I'm Marcus. Today I'm joined by Ashley Landy. Ashley is an artist and a writer from the USA. She's a website and a blog, which you can check out at www.ashleylandy.com. Alongside her wonderful writings, then, some of which we'll discuss today, you can also check out her stunning art, which is filled with vibrant colours, subtle gold leaves and captivating drawings of major figures, including Christ himself, which I was most enamoured with. So um, Ashley is then post-psychedelic and as a forthcoming memoir, on leaving psychedelics for Jesus, which is to be published with Lexham Press in the USA. So um, I suppose just to begin then, Ashley, can you tell us a little bit about your background and some of the key events and movements in your life, maybe even before we get into what seems to be a traumatic conversion to Christ? Sure, yeah. Um, so I was born and raised uh, in a suburb outside of Kansas City, Missouri, and my dad was a commercial interior designer and my mom worked for his business and stayed home with us. And so um, from a young age, I'd say I always had um, like an artistic environment, I guess. Um, my dad was, he designed our house and he was always very into kind of weird contemporary furniture and uh, artwork. And so um, I guess that's kind of my background as far as being an artist that was always part of my life. And as far as Spiritually, I was raised Methodist, and it was, I would say, a little bit of a nominal influence in my childhood. My dad was not fond of the Methodist church because he felt it was too liberal, and um, my mom, it was just what she had been raised in, And but we did um, go to church fairly frequently, and um, but as far as it being a major influence in our home that... Um, wasn't really, wasn't really there. And so spiritually, I kind of grew up, I, I would have said I believed, but then when I was, I think 14 years old, I decided that I was an atheist. And of course that shocked my parents. We had a huge blow up. They were very upset. And, but I, I just, none of it seemed um, plausible or real to me. And um, so it wasn't like a painful, you know, as a 14 year old, I didn't have a painful deconversion experience. I didn't have this painful deconstruction experience. It was easy to just kind of look it aside. And um, so, yeah, that was that was kind of my spiritual lineage. I think my parents became much deeper in their faith after I was already grown and out of the house. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks for that, Ashley. And were there any persons then who were especially inspirational or influential then in your early life, would you say? Um, yeah, I mean, I had, I had a good relationship with my parents and I love my parents. My dad passed away in 2018 and, um, looking back, just going through his things after he died, he would tear out little, the Kansas City Star used to feature a Bible verse, um, kind of buried in one of the sections every, every day. And he would tear out the little Bible verses and he would put them in his Bible. So looking back, it was, it was kind of precious to go through all his things and realize like, oh, there, I do have like more of a, there was more of a spiritual influence than maybe I perceived at the time. And like I said, my parents grew in their faith as they got older. And I also found um, my grandmother who she died when I was 11 or 12 and she my dad was from Southern California, which is very far away from Missouri. And so we didn't see her very often. So she didn't have um, as much of a direct impact on my life, but I found um, going through my dad's old things, I found one of her uh, prayer journals and it was just really precious to like 
read through that. And like I said, I didn't necessarily have that input at the time, but just going through and reading that, um, it's just really beautiful and, and heartening. So, um, yeah, and we had, I mean, we had, so I had a sister that I grew up with. She was two and a half years older than me. She was adopted from Southern Korea. We were very close to her children. And she passed away actually eight months before my dad did in 2017. And um, we had a good network of, I had a good network of aunts and uncles and um, some cousins. And so, yeah, we had a good, solid family life, I would say. No, that's brilliant. Thanks yeah. for sharing, Ashley. And um, then I suppose next, I would love to look at just some of your specific writings really to help us home in on a small part of your story. So if we may, um, there's one article, Acid Head, God Took Me Higher, which is a fascinating title in and of itself. So uh, can you just tell us a little bit about this article and uh, really your time growing mushrooms, which you, you start off with, which is pretty wild in itself, if you find the pun, and uh, the beginning of this spiral that ultimately led to what was your last trip then? Yeah, sure. So um, it's interesting. I hadn't I quit taking psychedelics, I would say uh, maybe eight years prior, seven or eight years prior to writing the article. And it was something that I really hadn't, my, you know, psychedelic career, <laughs> I don't know what to call it. <laughs> it was, I mean, psychedelics were a huge part of my life. They were constituted pretty much my entire religion. They were my primary form of recreation, um, my primary form of practicing my spirituality. Uh, but after that last experience with mushrooms, which was um, fairly traumatic, and I had had traumatic experiences before, so it wasn't as though I had all good experiences up to that point, and then all, all of a sudden I had a bad trip and I was done. Um, it was just a, a cumulative thing, but um, I completely lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. I have baby brain. I also like to say it's because of all the drugs I took that fried my brain, right? The article, the article. So, um, so yeah, that, that mushroom trip, I just viewed as kind of, um, my crowning disillusionment, I guess, with psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was a lot that led up to that point, but like I said, I hadn't necessarily up until I read the article, which I think was two years ago, I hadn't really thought about psychedelics in a long time I kind of would hear just you know rumors here and there or just you know see an article here and there that there was this renaissance going on and that there, there was this accelerating interest in the therapeutic potential and spiritual potential of psychedelics but I was busy raising children you know I just didn't really think about it and then I I came across an article actually there was an article in Exasis which is a Christian magazine. Now it's um, owned actually uh, owned by Christianity Today, which is a major Christian magazine in uh, America. And um, this particular article, I believe it was by Rachel Seo, it referenced another article that had appeared in, I think, um, McSweeney's that was written by a young woman. And I'm sorry, her name escapes me at the moment but she was writing about her deconversion from Christianity. She was raised um, evangelical Christian as a child, like pretty intensively. And she was writing about her deconversion from Christianity, which was precipitated by psychedelics and in particular um, MDMA and acid, I believe she wrote about. And just reading that and right, 
you know, I've thought, oh, like I went the opposite direction. <laughs> and I thought I could, I could write about that. Like I feel, um, I, and I felt like at that point, God had brought me a long way as far as healing me from all those experiences. I think that was another thing where I didn't, I just didn't even want to think about it for years afterward because I felt really, um, honestly, I felt really damaged and hollowed out by my pursuit of God through psychedelics. And like I said, just the cumulative effect of all those experiences, not all of which were bad, obviously. You know, there was a reason that I kept going back. Uh, there were very pleasurable experiences. There were very experiences that felt very transcendent, but ultimately it was just this constant chasing after and clutching at those past experiences. And it just slowly started going downhill. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for that, Ashley. And uh, what you said about the kind of evangelical, post-evangelical trend towards deconstruction is interesting because uh, like you, and I think like Paul Kingsworth, who was actually interviewing recently, it seems that we've yeah. gone the other way. We sought our salvation in things like politics. And then he, he referred to it as ascending up the divine ladder, which I thought was a great image. Um, <laughs> so I, it's, it's funny to me because I, I see these people who are now deconstructing, but simultaneously following the most fashionable political views of our time and portraying themselves as maybe I'm being a bit harsh but portraying themselves as being kind of radical it seems ridiculous to me and yeah. so yeah. I feel I do feel sorry for them I should say but um, yeah. it's interesting because I could not for the life of me return to that kind of simplistic faith in the political order to solve all the world's problems and so forth yeah. which is obviously yeah. the way they probably feel about their theological views <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you actually have an interesting, another interesting dimension to your story, which I think we might explore, is um, you did move from this kind of edgy new atheist uh, belief system, as it were, influenced by figures like Christopher Hitchens, who you write about, and then you write about moving to fall in love with LSD and use this powerful language. I wonder uh, if you might tell us about some of the major contours in that journey and what form it took then. Sure, yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess that was my first, you know, back then I would have looked at the first time I took acid as a major conversion experience because I converted from um, very passionate um, materialist atheism to believing that um, this isn't all there is. Like I remember saying after that, that first LSD trip, and I think I wrote about that in the article, like. I said, um, there's so much more than I ever thought there was. <laughs> and I was, um, so like I said, I declared myself an atheist when I was 14, you know, big blowout, my parents were horrified. Um, but I, I persisted in that for years, um, up really up until I was my, in my early 20s, 22 or 23. And there was some point at which I realized um, that I needed to be able to intellectually justify my atheism and I needed to be able to counter people, primarily my dad at the time, you know, who would approach me with arguments for the existence of God or for Christianity. And so, um, but the way that I, the direction in which I took that, I just, to me, it was just a, a foregone conclusion that God did not exist. Like I had already decided that I wasn't interested in looking at arguments for God in good faith. Like I, that wasn't an interest of mine. I just decided like, okay, I'm gonna read 
I'm going to read atheists and I'm going to um, equip myself to argue um, cogently, you know, against theism. And so I remember I read, uh, I had a friend who was also a very devoted atheist and he gave me, he loaned me some Sam, a Sam Harris book and a Richard Dawkins book and um, neither of them, honestly, the Dawkins, like I don't have a scientific mind. So that was kind of beyond my grasp, you know? And then um, Sam Harris, I just didn't, I don't know. He was fine. I didn't really like him that much <laughs> at the time even. <laughs> and, but then I discovered Christopher Hitchens and I, um, I read, I can't remember. I read some of his books that were available. And then I remember it was right around the time when his book, God is not great was coming out. And um, I rushed to the bookstore to buy it. And I remember just like going home and being so eager to read it. Like, you know, I think I just had this idea in my head, like this is going to be, and I look back now and see like, I was, I was searching, you know, and I was the desperation of my desire to prove atheism, you know, or to like be able to definitively say like, yes, this is the truth. I think the very like flavor of that desperation had um, a seeking after God in it, I guess. And um, I just remember like, I got like halfway through the Hitchens book and I just remember like feeling so depressed all of a sudden, like it, it was something I agreed, you know, I intellectually assented to everything that he was saying, but the way in which it was presented or just maybe like seeing it in print like that was just so disheartening. It just had a, it had like a emptiness to it that was, that was so depressing. And I just remember thinking, if, if I agree with this and I agree that, you know, this is all there is, there's nothing transcendent um, or, you know, the only transcendence that we can find is in art and music, which was kind of one of Christopher Hitchens's things. Like, I think he did believe in transcendence in some sense, but it came through, through art and music and literature. And I just remember feeling like, why does this, if this is, if this is true, then why does it feel so bad? <laughs> like, why, you know, why does it feel so? And I remember just kind of like putting the book down on the floor beside my bed and eventually it got kind of scooted under the bed and I just forgot about it. And um, by that point I had taken mushrooms, maybe like half a year prior. And it was just, um, it was toward the end of my senior year in college, a friend had them and I was like, sure, why not? I didn't really know anything about the psychedelic experience. I hadn't really read much. Um, and that night I just had a really good time. I just thought it was really fun. It was colorful and interesting and fascinating and goofy and funny. And um, I was with some of my friends and, and it was just fun. We just had a good time. And, but I, but I loved it. I remember like it, there wasn't a spiritual dimension in it for me at that point, but I just loved it. And, um, I think there was one more time, like a few months after then that I got mushrooms from someone else. And there again, it was just a really fun time. I think I took them with my, my best friend, Kathleen, who's my roommate in college. And it was just a party, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then after the Hitchens incident, I guess, and after feeling disillusioned with that, um, there was a man that I met who I asked him if he, had kind of in the orbit of, um, I think I was smoking marijuana at that point too. So kind of in that whole orbit. 
And I asked him if he had any mushrooms. He said, no, but I have some LSD. And I was like, okay, sure, great. Same thing, whatever. <laughs> and, um, and so he came over one afternoon and we took acid and we went for a walk and then we went back to my apartment. And I remember I was just staring up at the corner and there must've been something in the room that was like, you know, creating a prism and creating this rainbow on the wall, a piece of glass or something. And I just remember watching it and it started moving and pouring. And I said, I, uh, and of course he had come like with all, he kind of considered himself like an acid guru. He had come to my apartment with all this equipment. Like he had a singing bowl, a Tibetan singing bowl. And he had the Timothy Leary adaptation of the um, Tibetan book of the dead. And he had all this other stuff. And I was just kind of like, this is just going to be fun. You know, I don't need all that stuff. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not spiritual, you know, I don't care. And, but at, at that moment, I remember um, just looking at those colors. And I, I said to him, like, how does anyone ever have a bad trip? And he just looked horrified. And he said, well, don't think about it. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And, um, and of course, you know, looking back, the the experience kind of turned on that. <laughs> that was when the experience kind of turned and uh, it turned really bad. And um, I started freaking out and panicking. And I remember going to the, the bathroom and looking at myself in the mirror. And I was, there were just like gobs of flesh like falling off of my face and it was bloody. And it was like, it, my face would reconstitute itself and then it would just decay and fall off again. And there was a skull visible underneath and it was just, really disturbing. And um, then I remember at one point, you know, I was kind of at the peak of my freaking out, the peak of this bad trip. And it was like the whole room exploded in white light. And um, I experienced what I'm sure, you know, through your research on psychedelics and listening to people talk about them, a lot of people were, will refer to ego death that can occur. Um, and that's what it that's what it felt like and i remember afterwards thinking that was that seems like the best thing i've ever done and also the worst thing i've ever done and i don't think i'll ever do that again and um then like two weeks later i did it again so that was kind of the beginning of um like you said like i wrote in that article my um love affair with lsc and i did think when i sat down went to write about it using that language was appropriate because I it really was um like a love affair and so many or like a, a deification I guess you could say of the drug for me I was obsessed with it I would talk to everyone I could about it I was evangelistic for LSE and um I just thought it was the answer to everything I like I said it was my um I would have said at that point that I did believe in God um, especially after the second time I took LSD, I would have said that I believed in God, but really I believed in LSD. <laughs> so um, that was, yeah, that was the beginning. And that was kind of the story of my going from being this pretty hardline atheist to um, being open to the existence of a God. I still wouldn't hear about Christianity, <laughs> but I was open to the existence of, of uh, something beyond the material world. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Excellent. Thanks, Ashley. And um, there's so many, so many directions I, I would take that in. But uh, what it sort of strikes me at so many levels. So one level is one thing I always picked up, listening to Hitchens and 
I think part of his appeal was that there's this almost biblical quality of lament to him. It's this purely kind of parasitical anti-Christian vision, but there's no positive worldview. That kind of aesthetic love for art seems shallow in that context, to your point, I think. And uh, the fact that he was such a, a great rhetorician seems to have swung a lot of my friends. But like that, they would then... Like we were saying about the deconstruction people earlier on, then they would seek their salvation in politics. And you see them get really into these um, political parties and things that they would never have been interested in as we were growing up and things like that. So it sort of yeah. fits with a, a um, cultural trend that I see, which is interesting. And um, I'm also interested in, so you, there was that social element, um, even with the kind of pseudo guru element uh, that you see in some cases, but you also see, and something I'm interested in that you seem to hint at in your work is a lot, you and a lot of people seem to be doing drugs like this alone. So I'm wondering, um, what do you think is some of the background for that? Uh, kind of why it's done that way? And maybe where does that fit in with the wider meaning crisis and indeed this kind of mental health crisis? Are these drugs maybe an escapism for people or does it depend on the drug and so on and so forth? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think, um, I think for sure, I think ultimately, I think ultimately all, all drugs are some kind of form of escapism, you know, and I was, me and psychedelics, it was interesting because in the beginning, I, I actually got to the point where I preferred to do them by myself because I didn't want anyone interfering with my carefully curated experience. You know, I had these aspects of, I like to make my own playlist. I liked to, there were just certain aesthetic things that I liked to um, have available. And I didn't want anyone interfering with my experience, which is fascinating. A lot of people um, who are pro psychedelics will argue that, um, We'll, we'll argue that ego death occurs, that somehow your ego is, you know, dissipated through this, the experience and that you learn how to um, give up control in a sense. And I look back and I think like, I was very tightly controlled though about how, like I said, about how the experience was going to go, even though to an extent, it's true that you don't, um, things can go away that you didn't anticipate, things can go away that you didn't want, things, you know, a trip can turn bad in ways that you didn't expect. But um, I look back and think like, I kept like narrowing and narrowing the experience to this till it became, like I said, I preferred to do it alone. It became this very insular experience, this very isolated um, experience. And I think um, it's, I don't know, it's fascinating to think I was talking to my husband about um, one of the uh, discussion points that you sent over about Oh, in the 80s, cocaine was a very popular drug, you know, and now we see um, drugs, well, opioids, you know, in particular, are extremely popular now, kind of the drug of crisis um, and psychedelics, too, becoming increasingly popular. But um, life is, and life is so much, um, I've, I've heard it argued in many spheres that we're much more socially isolated, even before COVID happened, you know, we were already like much more so socially isolated in previous generations, um, at least in like mainline Protestant denominations, there's falling attendance and falling membership. Um, and I mean, I can see that around me, even in our, our little town here um, in Leon, 
in Kansas, like um, my, so my nephews last week, they were visiting and they live in a large suburb of Kansas City. And we went for a walk on the first day we were here. And my older nephew said, where are all the people? And I was like, oh, people don't, like, <laughs> you know, people don't really, people aren't out a lot here. People aren't. And so I do think it's fascinating to see how like the um, trends of like the substances people prefer kind of dovetail with the cultural trends and like the so-called meaning crisis too, which I think, you know, is absolutely real. Um, I think absolutely like psychedelics are, the, the renewed interest in psychedelics, the accelerating interest in psychedelics is absolutely a symptom of that. Like, um, Actually, last night we saw the Jesus Revolution movie, um, which I really enjoyed. And I had I had watched a documentary about Lonnie Frisbee before, so it was interesting to see how um, how he's portrayed in that. And of course, I I really enjoyed the book um, God's Forever Family by Larry Eskridge, which is kind of about that whole movement. But um, at one point, the Lonnie Frisbee said, uh, you know, people are. He was trying to explain the hippie movement to this old, to um, Chuck Smith, this older pastor. And he said, um, these people are hungry for God. Like these people are searching for God. And I think that's, I think that's absolutely true with psychedelics. Unfortunately, I don't think that psychedelics um, reliably or even frequently or maybe ever, I don't know, lead people into the truth. Uh, which of course I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's fascinating that it's happening now. I, I also think it's fascinating the connections that psychedelics have with um, trans transhumanism. It seems like these major figures like um, Elon Musk. I read something the other day about the founder of Whole Foods. He's, he's always been a little nutty, but um, <laughs> these major like tech people and of course like um i've heard that burning man is a huge attraction for like um major tech people um but yeah it's interesting oh and um who's the guy the other um peter thiel yeah um who's a major investor in psychedelics and i'm sure into psychedelics himself also very interested in transhumanism like that's fascinating to see and like there's like a strain of evil and I think the demonic and transhumanism and AI that uh, is very disturbing, but it's interesting to see um, kind of the, the overlap between interest in that and interest in psychedelics. But, but yeah, it's, it's a very interesting um, cultural moment, I guess. <laughs> No, that makes sense. That's interesting. It's funny that you say that. I think um, it sort of makes sense to me that, that they would be interested in both those things because um, it's if you're imagining the universe in this kind of imminent frame, as Charles Taylor talks about, there is no transcendent realm outside of time, matter and space, then you're going to seek your salvation in the purely material way. And then it seems like these drugs, I think to your point, or transhumanism, these technologies, or how we become gods is like our sacrament almost. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Does that make sense? And yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah, and I, it's interesting to look back and I, there was times on, um, you know, and I've heard people claim that, make claims that, um, I can't remember if it was, and I know Steve Jobs was into acid too. And um, there was sometimes like this weird digital quality to 
acid in particular, um, like the patterns and the, um, yeah, it was just weird. And I look back on that and it feels a little spooky to me, you know, that it's so embedded in the tech world um, and that, and it absolutely, like you said, it absolutely, um, and I would have called it my sacrament too at one point. And, but like you said, if this all there, if this is all there is, then of course, like, why shouldn't we pursue as many transcendent experiences as possible by whatever means? And why shouldn't we try to prolong life by whatever and avoid death and suffering by whatever means possible? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, actually one question that I hadn't have thought of, but just as you were speaking there, it sort of kicked in my mind. Have you come across uh, what Mary Harrington's been writing recently? She's written a recent book, Feminism Against Progress. And she actually made, I was listening to an interview she did for um, trigonometry, and she the claim that the pill was actually the first transhumanist technology. That's like I hadn't thought of before. I thought that was really interesting. interesting. You might enjoy Mary Hart. Yeah. I haven't. I'm definitely going to look her up now, but that is a really fascinating idea. And I mean, yeah, I can, I can for sure see that. That is really interesting. Yeah. And uh, I suppose you've you've maybe hinted at what your answer might be, but as it pertains to the the use of these drugs, even within a more communal context, so some people might say, well, that's kind of our expressive individualist West, the way it is, like we're bringing a lot of our problems to these substances, but uh, then argue that there's a case for the use of drugs within a more kind of social context. You have these. Uh, supposedly ancient customs in, in places like Brazil they, they would have done allegedly ayahuasca do you think um, there's even a place for that kind of thing or do you think that's still a, a problem in some ways uh yes I think it's still a problem <laughs> in some ways and I think the so the idea that these indigenous cultures have been using um substances for millennia uh, in this way is just it's it's accepted like uncritically like I'll see it in news articles there's no nothing cited it's just stated as though it's a universally accepted statement but it's really not true so like the indigenous use just from the reading I've done and the research I've done which admittedly I'm not you know an anthropologist but um the the use was not nearly as widespread as psychedelic components like to claim and also the use was not of the same nature as our modern you know therapeutic obsessed culture <laughs> you know is how we're wanting to use psychedelics um and when i was preparing for um unbelievable what was that a year and a half ago two years ago um i remember watching this documentary on YouTube and it's actually been taken down. I don't know why, but it was called Magical Death and it was the University of Pennsylvania Anthropology Department. It was recorded in like 1970 and they were, um, it was a documentary, a short documentary, like half an hour long about this um, Brazilian, like native um, Brazilian tribe who, use ayahuasca and it wasn't even the entire tribe that used ayahuasca it was just the shamans within the tribe and um it was really disturbing because the way that the shamans would use ayahuasca like they they very much um believed in the spirit world you know that was very much like just um an intrinsic belief like it's just a given you know 
that they believed in the spirit world and these shamans would use ayahuasca to summon and they had certain spirits that they were well acquainted with that they you know would routinely associate with in the spiritual realm and they would use the ayahuasca to um summon these spirits and to summon these spirits in order to and ask them to attack an enemy tribe and to um i forget what the trans it was just really disturbing the translator was talking well you know this practice was being performed in the tribe and and they said um this shaman was um summoning the spirit and asking the spirit to kill the babies of the enemy tribe and so i remember watching that and just thinking like wow like i just and in addition that wasn't the only thing but in addition to reading articles and reading um research papers that the the use wasn't nearly as widespread it was used it was not used in the same way that westerners are now um trying to use it or choosing to use it it wasn't used in this like um personal personal therapy way you know personal like purgative therapeutic way mm-hmm. it was used as a means of access to the spiritual realm um for the purpose and i say in many cases for the purpose of sorcery and witchcraft so um yeah i thought that was really interesting and so you know i've struggled with um it's hard to argue with personal testimonies of people who have undergone psilocybin therapy and they say that it helps them they say that it helped them overcome an addiction um of course that you know and that kind of usage isn't new either like that was done in the 50s and 60s with LSD for alcoholism and wasn't the efficacy wasn't really there but um you know like i said it's hard to argue with someone's personal subjective testimony um and actually i i read i was reading a testimony of a woman who said um that psilocybin she had a horrible experience in one of the Johns Hopkins trials on psilocybin but it she did quit smoking and so i look at something like that i'm like well what is that worth you know to have a psychologically damaging experience yes you quit smoking which is a good you know that's that's obviously like an unqualified good to quit smoking um my dad died of you know from smoking related illness so um i've definitely seen the ravages that that it causes and um I look back when I was I think 24 my husband and I had an LSD trip where I smoked the last cigarette that I've ever smoked in my life I never touched a cigarette again because it was like I tried to smoke one while on LSD and it was so repulsive <laughs> that that memory is embedded in my mind and I don't even like smelling cigarettes I don't even they just are disgusting to me so I'm like well you know I guess I quit smoking through LSD too but um i do wonder um particularly after reading um i think you mentioned have you are you familiar with lewis unget and his book return of the dragon mm-hmm. okay so um he wrote a book return of the dragon and he um i he makes a pretty compelling argument he talks about the references to pharmakia in the bible um and that that would have been understood the word pharmakia that would have been understood as um practices of witchcraft and sorcery using which often use psychedelic drugs um and he talks about the relationship between um psychedelic drug use in history and um cultures that had some kind of serpent god 
and practiced human, human sacrifice and how like we see instances of these things being connected throughout history. And so um, reading that book was also, like I said, also really um, eye-opening to the point where I, I don't know, I generally feel like there is no, there's no good. <laughs> like, I generally feel like it's just, I, I can't, at this point, I can't think of any context or I have not, you know, witnessed any context. I haven't through my own personal research and reading, obviously through my own personal experiences, I can't imagine a context where taking, even a therapeutic context where psychedelics would be more effective or safer or better than um, another kind of treatment. So yeah, sorry, that was my extremely long answer. <laughs> no, that's great. I appreciate that. Thank you, Ashley. I think that that is sort of what I thought even um, would make sense logically that a lot of these things that people try to insert a, <laughs> drugs into the competition, it's not as if you can't have an alternative that is better or in a net sense it doesn't have a lot of the downsides doesn't have the same kind of addictive qualities whatever the case might be um so that that's i'm actually i'm glad you said that was interesting yeah. to hear. and um i suppose if we might then refer back to your journey once more i'm keen to let people hear a bit of the um what moved you ultimately then from seeing LSD and things like that as your friend and then to discovering Christ or true friend. And um, there's really touching, heartbreaking bits to the story, if you're happy to tell, um, with the likes of poor Joella and your friend and how that impacted you then. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I met my husband. Um, we had two beautiful children. It's kind of, you know, to summarize and um we still would you know whenever we had the chance when my children were with my parents or his parents we would still it would became more of a special occasion obviously because we had children and so the opportunity to take psychedelics were few and far between but um we always viewed it with um great reverence you know and like this was our um like i said earlier it was our religious experience it was our spirituality and that continued on for um a number of years I'd say five or six years and um during that time I had a friend named Carrie who I had known from childhood and I knew that she had become a Christian in college I remember connecting with her through email when we were in college and and she wrote what I thought of at the time as like a very wacky email about how God was moving in her life and God was doing all these things in her life and every other sentence she said or almost every sentence had something about Jesus or God in it and I just thought it was goofy and I felt sorry for her and because I felt like she had fallen into this kind of silly naive religion you know meanwhile I was into the deep stuff you know and um after we both had children uh I reconnected with her and we would get together for playdates for our children and I remember she um I would kind of spout off whatever new age theory I was into at the time and she would always just respond very very gently she just she's a very gentle person just has a very sweet gentle nature about her 
and she would always respond. She would listen to me and then she would always respond um, by quoting something from the Bible. She would say, well, the Bible says this, you know, and I would just kind of be like, whatever, you know, and um, she and we, oh, and kind of concurrent with this, my husband, um, he was always more studious about actually studying other religions than I was. Um, and he would, you know, go and try to read like um, original texts from religions. He would read through the entire Quran, you know, and I would just read more bits and pieces. I read some of the Quran and then whatever he was reading at the time, I would kind of read some of it, but he was always more um, scholarly, I guess, and methodical about the way he would study things. And at one point um, we had had some negative psychedelic experiences, but like I said, that alone wasn't enough to make us quit, you know, or make us think that they were bad. But um, at one point he, um, he, he kind of became disenchanted. He was really into Alan Watts, he was into Jung. Like he became kind of disenchanted with them, Ram Dass. And um, he decided he would try reading some early Christian writings. And um, he was reading Athanasius and um, I think it's Augustine. I learned recently that I was, I pronounced Augustine incorrectly my entire life. And so now I'm like trying to remember. I think like Augustine is the correct way. And forgive me if I, I don't know, I might never get it right. But um, so he was, he was reading these things and I was kind of like, you know, this is weird, but whatever. Cause like I said, I was open to virtually anything except for Christianity. And so um, at the time he also began to see um, a therapist. He was just struggling with controlling his anger. Um, and this therapist challenged him to quit smoking marijuana every day and to go to start going to church. And so he took up the challenge. He quit. He didn't completely give up marijuana, but he quit smoking it daily. And he started going to this church that was down the street from us. And I was, I was completely opposed. I said, no, I'm not stepping foot in the church in the way you can go by yourself. And um, so he did. And um, so, like I said, that was kind of concurrent with um, me um, kind of reinvigorating my friendship with Carrie and then my husband was going to church and, but I was still very resistant to um, both these things. And um, Carrie had a two-year-old daughter named Joella and she, um, they started noticing just one day, she, she was very lethargic. She started acting very lethargic, which, you know, as you know, with your um, your niece, like, it's not normal for a toddler to be super lethargic, you know, I mean, they have a lot of energy, and then they'll, they'll crash and nap, but she was just constantly lethargic, and um, then they noticed she had some bleeding on her thumbs, and they thought this is strange, and they, so they took her into the, oh, and she was having low-grade fevers all the time, so um, they took her into a doctor, she was diagnosed with leukemia, and I remember at the time, I, um, someone one of another of her friends set up a meal train for her which is this website where you can go and sign up to take people meals and I had signed up for a meal like three weeks out and I remember I was um uh I looked at the calendar again like in preparation the next day I was going to take a meal and um 
and I got an email from the organizer of that of that meal train, that meal um, plan, and she said Joella's service is going to be such and such a date. And I just remember I was so confused, like service, like what, what are they talking? About? What's like, what does that mean? And then I realized she's talking about a funeral, and I realized like. And so um, what had happened is like the leukemia had just like gone so fast. It, the cancer had spread super quickly and she, she died within like, I think it was like three weeks from diagnosis to death. Um, it was just like devastating. And um, oh, and meanwhile, also this time I discovered that, um, and I'm sorry, I guess I, I get the timeline a little confused in my head. Um, I just had, we just had our son at the time because at the time that Joella died, I had found out that I was pregnant with our daughter and, um, and I was actually really upset to be pregnant. And I, of course, I look back now, I have my beautiful 11 year old daughter and I regret that, but I just, um, I don't know. I didn't, I loved my son, but I didn't necessarily have the worldview at the time that children are always a blessing. And, um, yeah. And so I think I was six weeks pregnant, six or seven weeks pregnant, eight weeks maybe when we went to Joel's funeral. And um, I mean, it was just, it was heartbreaking, like this little perfect, and she was the most beautiful child. She was such a beautiful child. And she's just laying there in the coffin and she looked like a doll. I mean, she didn't look dead, but it was just so, it was so shattering it was so dissonant you know to see a child like that and I remember at the time I feel like I was reaching kind of a crisis point with um the old beliefs I held like weren't working anymore you know I had completely I had bought into this like vague new age notion um and you know Western New Age philosophy is just kind of this mishmash of like whatever you want, basically. And um, I, but I just bought into this idea that there was really like there needn't be any such thing as true suffering. Like it was all in your mind. Um, and I was also super into yoga, super into practicing yoga and meditation. So just very into this idea that like everything could be love and light and bliss and like suffering need not really um occur like it need not really be an experience a facet of the human experience and so like the just extreme dissonance of like that philosophy meeting up um colliding with this devastating tragic death of this beautiful little girl like it was just it was shattering and i remember at the funeral um carrie and her husband they were I think it just struck me how they were, they were not destroyed. Like they were, they were struck down, you know, but they were not destroyed. They were mourning, but they were not, they were not like annihilated, which is, you know, I felt like I would be like, if my, if my child died, you know, at the time I just felt like, I don't know how, why would I go on living? Like what hope would I have? What? And um, so that just really, the whole experience just really got me thinking um, and just their, their witness in that way, that they were, obviously they were filled with sorrow. They were overwhelmed with sorrow, but they weren't completely destroyed. And I just remember thinking like, how are they like that? Like, how, how are they like that? Um, and I finally agreed to go uh, to church 
with my husband. And I remember I was still just, I was so arrogant. And I remember going in just thinking, I don't want to be here. This is dumb. And um, we said, I'm, you know, I insisted we sit near the back. And um, during the worship, at the beginning of the service, I don't even remember what songs they were, you know, I don't remember, but I just remember being overcome with emotion and just sitting there sobbing. And I was, I was humiliated because I was like, I don't feel seriously <laughs> sobbing, this is embarrassing, but just being like overwhelmed with emotion. And I think that coupled, particularly Joella's death, just really got me thinking like, you know, maybe there's something to this whole Jesus person <laughs> you know maybe there's something here like it was what really like cracked me open and like I said that that dissonance of like my worldview can't do anything with this situation like my worldview like this doesn't fit in my worldview there's no there's no accounting for this the death of this beautiful child that doesn't make any sense like there's no um yeah there's no like hope beyond this. And I remember um, a couple of years ago, I well, and there was also the idea that like um, within the new age sphere that you, like the law of attraction thing, you know, like you manifest whatever you focus on, whatever. And it's this very like, it's this very weird delusional, you know, taken to its logical conclusion. It's like you have ultimate power I mean it's basically like you are God like you control your environment I mean it can people couch it in subtler terms than that but that's essentially the gist of it um and and that worldview I was like this doesn't make sense because like Carrie is the sweetest nicest person she didn't deserve this she didn't bring this on herself this isn't some kind of you know I couldn't believe this was some kind of result of some kind of karma or you know some kind of um and so like I said yeah that just the 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 dissonance of that just really cracked me open and and also Carrie and her husband's witness as Christians and how they yeah what they how they acted what how they behaved um it was just it was just otherworldly like it was yeah it was beautiful I mean there was even amidst the extremity of the sorrow there was like a beauty to their faith and their witness. Well, thanks. That's that's powerful. Thank you so much for sharing, Ashley. And um, I think uh, alongside finding that grace and that amidst that awful suffering and um, finding the redemptive nature and suffering in that kind of personal way, I think that's most important at a kind of societal level. As you, you mentioned, the word worldview there, I think that was one of the things I became ultimately dissatisfied with figures like Alan Watts and this. Um, Buddhist notions of and Hindu notions of Maya, everything's an illusion. And even our, the attachment that the parents would feel to the child would be considered an, a, a cause of suffering itself. And that's something to be escaped from. People yeah. think they they hear these nice little tidbits about Buddhism and think, oh, that sounds lovely. It's all about but it's it's such if you really probe into it, it's such right. a horrible, depressing worldview. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like if if you like I said the, the law of attraction thing you know that you could couch it in subtler terms yeah like you said there are those little snippets that say like oh that sounds like a nice principle but then when you think about the actuality of it and like how that would be applied and how that would I remember one time I walked into 
the yoga studio that um, that's probably, I don't know, maybe a year before Joella died, I walked into the yoga studio and my yoga teacher was having a conversation with another woman and she was talking about going to this Buddhist retreat and part of it was a uh, like a silent retreat and she said one of the teachers was talking about um, non-attachment, you know, and how she she said she kind of questioned at the time she was like, I don't understand, you know, I don't understand. Like, I'm just not supposed to care if my brother dies. Like, and she said the teacher's response to that was like, well, you don't, you don't start with that. You start with breaking your smaller attachments first. And then you build up to that, you know, and they're having this conversation and the other lady is like, oh yeah. You know, and I, even at the time, I just remember thinking like, what? <laughs> I don't, I don't want, I don't want to be to the point where I don't care. Like that just, it just seemed so wrong, you know, like it, it just seems so like patently apparently wrong. And so, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Like you said, like you hear, you know, those little snippets like, Oh, that sounds interesting. Or like, you know, I know they've tried to implement like mindfulness techniques in schools and stuff. And like, Oh, this seems like a, you know, this seems like a good practice. This seems like a, and I do think this is a, a different subject, but I do think it's, it's really interesting that Buddhism is kind of viewed as like this spiritually neutral religion, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of the last acceptable um, religion, religion in secular society as those neutral. And I, I find it interesting too, that um, in some of the, I've read that some of the psychedelic therapy rooms, like Johns Hopkins or places like that, um, these research hospitals who have these psychedelic programs, like they, you know, they say they try to make things spiritually, spiritually neutral, but then there'll be imagery like mandalas or Buddha statues in the room. And I'm like, why, why is that considered, why is Buddhism considered neutral? <laughs> like, you know, among the, it's just interesting. I'm like, that's not neutral, you know, but for whatever reason, it's considered neutral. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that, that's really interesting. I think in part, it, it just um, it's because secularism and its constructs are historically anti-Christian. And I think uh, in some cases, although to your point, I think uh, Buddhism is the main one. But in some cases, strangely enough, Islam is uh, treated yeah. favorably in the public service. I know in Ireland, the same day that the old blasphemy laws, Christian blasphemy laws were overturned. You had the EU pushing through new blasphemy laws that you can't say this, that, and the other about Muhammad. I just thought that was disturbing, fascinating, disturbing. Yeah, that is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, 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 I do find it fascinating too. My, um, my husband works in a very uh, blue collar industry. <laughs> and there's a lot of um, taking the name of the Lord in, in vain, you know, and there's um, a lot of, and just when you watch anything, you know, there's always, there's, oh my God and worse. And I, I, you never hear like, oh my Buddha, or you certainly don't ever hear, oh my Muhammad, because that would be <laughs> big trouble. Yeah. Um, but I just think it's fascinating that like, why is it so acceptable to take the name of the Lord in vain? Yet, yet it's almost it's this interesting, I don't know, paradox that like, oh, my Buddha, like wouldn't have as much potency to people either, you know, mm -hmm. or saying, you know, Buddha dam or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. I could go on about that forever. And it reminds me of my, my, uh, oh, that, 
reminds me of something Christopher Hitchens said. It was actually in the, I went back and reread um, God is Not Great recently because I, I wrote this essay actually for um, this collection that I think is going to come out in August or September about, um, it's called Coming to Faith Through Dawkins and it's a collection of essays by people, it's not specifically Dawkins, but like people who um, became Christians um, and had, and the, the one of the new atheists um, had some kind of influence in that experience. And anyway, I was going back and reading God is Not Great and in the afterward to one of the later editions, um, he talks about, Christopher Hitchens talks about being at a book signing in Arkansas. And he said, he comments to the, the audience, the, the people who are there for the book signing, he says like, um, you know, how they're kind of in the heart of the Bible Belt in the United States. And, and he said on the way there to this book signing, he saw a billboard that said, Jesus saves. And he said, it says both, just that one phrase, like it says both too much and too little. And I just thought that was an interesting thing for him to say, you know, and he didn't really elaborate on, on it in his afterward. And I was like, it says both too much and too little. Like, I just, I find that interesting. And like you said, he, and he was such a, I mean, he was such a clever person, you know, and a talented rhetorician, like you said. And, um, but it was like, I mean, his whole foundation was being anti-theist. Like it was, it was a negatively framed, like, like you said, there wasn't anything better for him to offer. And like, he would kind of, he would kind of like rhapsodize about, oh, well, we have this wonderful literature and art and, but it like, it was just like insufficient, you know, <laughs> like that's not insufficient. Like what's the source of that? like you know what's the meaning behind that wonderful art and literature like why does it touch us why does it and so yeah yeah it's just it's it's interesting secular secularization is just it makes me think too of I have a friend actually my friend from college who I did mushrooms with a few times she works at a very fancy hotel in New Orleans and she, um, she's not a believer, you know, I've talked to her about it. She'll, she'll just open to talking about it, but I asked her once several years ago if she would read the first few chapters of John just as a favor to me. And um, she said she would. And I said, well, do you have a Bible? I can send you, I can send you a Bible, I'll be happy to. And she said, oh no, I have a whole box of them in the corner of my office. She's a manager in this fancy hotel in New Orleans. And I said, why why do you have a box of bibles in the corner she said oh because we took them out and i don't know if it's so in in america i don't know if this is worldwide or like the gideon bibles in hotels yeah and so she said they had they decided i don't know if they decided like the order came from you know higher management or they just decided as a hotel like we're taking you know this is silly we're going to take these bibles out of the room nobody wants who wants this anymore you know but they took the Bibles out of the rooms, but she said, nobody can bring themselves to take the box to the dumpster. It was like, <laughs> they all agreed that it was, you know, this is ridiculous claptrap, but nobody <laughs> could bring themselves to actually grow. I just thought that was really fascinating. I thought that was really interesting. Absolutely. And, um, 
Yeah, your, your comments about Hitchens really intrigued me too, because again, I always thought it was this lament. He was always using part of the Christian story against itself. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. it's a, yeah. there's a great quote by G.K. Chesterton when he talks about the virtues run amok, basically, that uh, they're they're no longer virtues because they've been separated from one another and really just run with one. We neglect the others, like Hitchens had lament, but he had no time for praise and so on. I think that's a, yeah. a good way of reading him. I think, especially in light of uh, Tom Holland's Dominion, I think is to sort of fill in the gaps of that book. Uh, I've been thinking about that recently. <laughs> yeah, interesting. That's so interesting to think of. Yeah, him as lamenting. I mean, I can definitely see that, and I, I find it fascinating too. I. Uh, there was a book um, that one of his friends, who's a believer, wrote about him. It's called like The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. It wasn't that great of a book, I thought, but um, <laughs> I read it. So it was he says um, that he said that Christopher Hitchens' favorite song was Higher Love by Steve Winwood. I don't know if you've ever heard that song. It's like, bring me a high you know, like there must be a higher love without it. We're just wasting time. <clears throat> like, like that is interesting. You know? <laughs> that is, why would that be your favorite song? <laughs> and it, obviously it's not an explicitly Christian song, but it's a very much, you know, like this like yearning for something beyond this for a higher love. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah, it's fascinating. He was mm-hmm. a very interesting person. Yeah, absolutely. And um, actually one thing I wanted to get back to that we were discussing was um, quite recently, a few months ago, I had a a Bernardo Castrop on my channel and he's he's great in many ways. He's an ally against a much kind of secularist materialism. He's some good points, but some of the stuff just makes me, my eyes roll to be honest. And um, there is an element of, he's still at that popular kind of quasi secular um, stage whereby you see religion as just one thing and you don't make these say differences between say the christian faith and buddhism and so on you try to blend them together but um some of the language on the surface might sound like it lends itself to that but uh, i think obviously if you go into the scriptures deeply that that's <laughs> that notion will uh, dissipate so i wanted to look at it in terms of um what it means to die to Christ specifically, and how does that then contrast with these notions of ego death and Ram Das and some of those new age gurus that you're talking about then? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's yeah, and I I um I think it's common in the psychedelic world to have that kind of um what would you call it like is that like syncretism or um you know, this idea that like, oh, when we talk about ego death, like in Christianity, they say this. In Buddhism, they call it this, you know, like, as though it's it's the exact same thing, which is couched in these diff- in different language. And like, no, it's not the same thing at all. <laughs> like, um, I think it's telling to look back and like I said, to see how, how tightly I controlled this experience that was supposedly, you know, causing me to um, causing my ego to dissolve and causing me to, um, lose control, you know, causing me, and there's also, ultimately, it's like, yeah, there is, you know, when people say ego death, I know what they're talking about, that experience of, um, I don't know, it's kind of like being obliterate, there is a mimicry of death and rebirth, 
I would say in psychedelic use, there can be that experience that, um, and so therefore, you know, I was like, oh, well, when Christians say, talk about, you know, dying in Christ or being born again, like, oh, I know, I know what they're talking about. Like, yeah, I've, I've done that, you know, um, <clears throat> there is like that mimicry, but it's not, it's not the same thing. Like it's, um, there is, I say what, there's like a dying, I mean, it's a dying to emptiness. Like, what are you dying to? What are you being reborn into? Um, I think a lot about, um, is it in Luke 11, Luke 10, Luke 11, um, where Jesus talks about when unclean spirits go out of a person, they wander around in arid areas looking for rest, they find none, they go back and find the home um, clean and swept. And then they bring seven more spirits with them. And the last condition is even worse than the first. Like, I really think about that in terms of psychedelics and what they do, because they do have this like obliterating quality, you know, they have, and that, that same quality, it's a very, it can be a very destabilizing quality, destabilizing experience for a lot of people. Um, and that's why you see, I mean, acid casualties are a real thing. Like it can be a very psychologically destabilizing experience. And I think that quality too is what I guess people are hoping can like snap people out of the, um, you know, years long depressions or like years long patterns of behavior of addiction or, but um, yeah, maybe you can, you can clean the house, but if the house is empty, then I mean, I feel like, and looking back, I feel like there are absolutely demonic uh, influences at play in, in my life and my experience. Um, and I absolutely think that's real. And so, I mean, it's just a completely, it's, yeah, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing at all. Like dying, <coughs> Christ being born again in Christ. I was reading, um, one of my, well, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, I think one of my favorite verses in, in Colossians where Paul talks about being united in love um, so that you may know, um, you may know the mystery of God. I may be paraphrasing a little. I should just memorize it. You know the mystery so that you will know the mystery of God who is Christ. Like Christ is the mystery of God in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I remember the first time I read that the first time I read the New Testament after, you know, coming out of my psychedelic use, just reading that and being like, wow, like really? Like that's, that's a big claim, you know, that all the, the, that the mystery of God is Christ and in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And like, that's why I think, you know, you can look at, like you said, like occasionally those snippets from Buddhism or like, they seem like good principles. They seem like lowercase t truth. But anything that is true in those other religions, if it's not mediated through Christ, like it's it's not truth. I don't know if that makes if that makes sense. That's right. I think that's again like for Chesterton's point. It, you're just yes. in part and yeah. using it against the whole, or it has to be properly integrated into. Right. Yeah. You know, sure. That makes, that makes yeah. sense to me for sure. 
yeah. I think that makes a logical sense. And um, so I know you have to go in a few moments. I, just before we do, I want to ask you about one figure that I, I adore and I was kind of keen to hear your thoughts in, that being Bob Dylan. Um, I'm wondering what he has meant to you, what he means to you, in part because he is this fascinating figure who became Christian after all of these experiences. He was kind of a, one of the main figures in the 60s who was um, at the forefront of some of those things and then became very kind of small orthodox Christian. I wonder what you make of that now. Yeah, yeah. And I've read like some people, and I mean, he's Bob Dylan, so he's very um, kind of cantankerous, you know, and secretive. <laughs> and so some people would say he's not a Christian anymore, but I think he is. There's no hard evidence that he's he's not. And so I'd like to believe he's retained his Christian faith. And, um, I love Bob Dylan. He was so, and it's it's just fascinating to me. Like he was so, and his music and his lyrics were so meaningful to me. Like, like I said, I would always make playlists for my trips, and a lot of times it would be mostly Bob Dylan. Um, and I remember just everything he said was just like, wow, like that's you know. And it was like my experience would take on, you know, it was like Bob Dylan was narrating my life, you know, and my experience. And um, it's just the way that he can turn a phrase is just, I mean, it's like no one else. And the, the fact that he could, he could articulate experiences and articulate, and it's interesting too, to look back and see like, even in his early records, when I was um, super into psychedelics, um, probably bringing it all back home again, and Highway 61, One on One, one of my favorites, um, like the big 60s records. Um, and, it's just fascinating to see like how there were, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but like I can see how there were like elements, there were Christian elements, like there was um, a Christ hauntedness, you know, even about those records. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I still, I still love him. And I still like, I, there, it's interesting, there are some, records that I would listen to a lot when I was tripping that I just I can't go back and listen to those because they just too many memories too many associations but Bob Dylan isn't like that for me like he's just he's eternal he's timeless and so um yeah I still listen to those records all the time yeah thank god and <clears throat> are there any particular a favorites uh, that you'd like to recommend and why do they maybe stick with you so much then? Yeah, so um, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall was always one of my favorites. Um, and I just think it's like incredibly profound. And um, Bob Dylan's 150th Dream was always one of my favorite. I just think it's a hilarious slapstick <laughs> like, <laughs> song um, and also really profound. Idiot Wind from Blood on the Tracks is one of my favorites. The whole record is just beautiful and touching and, and wonderful. And um, actually, um, The Gates of Eden is probably one of my very favorites. And actually, the working title of my book is Outside the Gates of Eden, because I love Bob Dylan so much. And I felt like it was an apt, you know, hopefully I'm not violating any trademarks. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I just chose that title because it just seemed really fitting. And also I wanted to, you know, pay like a little homage to, to him. So yeah, those are, those are, those are some of my favorites. And probably from his, 
his Christian records, I think, um, when he returns is one of my favorites. Um, I think that's on the John Wesley Harding or, or um, the train one. Yeah. But yeah, I love that one. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, just, I suppose, to close then this evening about that book, um, when will it come out? And is there anything else you can tell us about it then? Yeah, so I um, just sent my first round. So my, um, we're still in the editing process, basically. And I, I was slowed down. I took a little break uh, after my baby was born and, and things slowed way down. I actually wrote the book. I wrote my first draft while I was pregnant. Um, I was still writing up until I was like 36 weeks pregnant. And then I like had to, you know, finish because I literally couldn't sit up over my belly was so big. Um, but, um, and so we're in the editing stages. My editor said, hopefully early next year, um, but it's just kind of contingent on, on how fast we can move and um, how things go. And, and we had talked about maybe incorporating some of my artwork and, um, so that could be a possibility. And so, yes, I'm hoping early next year. So like, like I said, things have been slowed way down by me having a baby, but um, I'm really excited. I, I think um, the time is right. I just hope that, that God puts it in the right hands. And, and you know, like I, um, I feel like there are other people doing really important work as far as um, like the more scholarly and research side of things. Um, my friend, Joe Welker, um, he writes a blog um, that's more about um, kind of breaking down, um, well, the abuses in the psychedelic world and also like how we as Christians relate to these things. Um, and then there are some critical voices out there. Like I think we had talked about, or you had mentioned Jules Evans, he's not a Christian, but um, he, you know, has some interesting things to say about, he's more skeptical, I guess, about psychedelics, but um, so I'm just, you know, I am just um, a memoirist, I guess, and like, <laughs> it's just my story, this book is just my story, it's not scholarly, it's not, you know, but um, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm excited, um, it feels very vulnerable, but I'm, I'm excited, um, for it to be published and I just hope that God does with it what what he will and what he wants so yeah beautiful I mean and um I hope it's a blessing for many and I'm looking forward to reading it now thank you thank you Ashley God bless you thank you you too